Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I am your host for this week, Len Hafer. And uh, I have two special guests here today. Uh, first off, we have the strategy lead for Vortex Games, Trent Murray. Hello. And uh, Frost Giant Studios head of esports, Trevor Houston. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, the topic today is going to be sort of um, RTS esports more broadly and a little bit more specifically uh, what Frost Giant is planning to do. Uh, you guys announced your game at, at the Jeff Summer Festival of Jeffness, I believe. And, <laughs> it's a good title for uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fact that there is a head of esports, uh, I think, tells us that there might be some plans for that coming down the pipe. Um, but since this is both of your first time on the show, uh, we'll start with you, Trevor. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, what you're working on and kind of what your role is at the company. Sure. So I'm Trevor Houston, uh, also go by Torch as a pseudonym for gaming. Uh, been competing in a variety of games for a very long time, since early 2000s, uh, mostly in, in first person shooters and strategy games. Uh, that ultimately led me to play professionally in Korea for StarCraft II in 2010 and 2011, right at the, the beginning of the game. Uh, but I quickly shifted over from being a professional player to actually working behind the scenes and doing a little bit of casting, uh, both for StarCraft II, League of Legends, uh, and a few other games. Um, that took me around a couple companies in Korea, including GOM TV and, and OGN on TV. Uh, and then I shifted back to the US for IGN Pro League. And uh, that ultimately got acquired by Blizzard, where I spent a little over eight years working on a uh, little StarCraft II. Uh, a lot of Hearthstone uh, it was the early part of uh, Hearthstone and esports as that grew. And then I shifted over to Overwatch esports as the, the game came out, leading everything that wasn't Overwatch League from the, the competitive side. Uh, at Frost Giant, we're a new studio. We're coming out with a, a PC RTS in a few years here. And it's built out of a lot of the passion that w existed for RTS at Blizzard that wanted to go on and make the successor of StarCraft II or WarCraft III, uh, something in those veins. And with that naturally comes uh, making sure that we're managing the esports community, the esports programs, and, and building it into the game as a really uh, high quality experience for anyone that's trying to participate. So there's a broad spectrum of things to work on there, but uh, just trying to make sure that everything that we do is a nice legacy for the Blizzard RTS games. Excellent. And Trent, what is your background with esports? Yeah, so I began as a journalist, a writer in esports, originally as a freelancer for Riot in the early days of the League of Legends Championship Series. Uh, consulted and freelanced for a number of clients in the MOBA space, uh, eventually spending a lot of time in Heroes of the Storm uh, before moving to the business side of esports reporting with the Esports Observer and the Sports Business Journal, uh, covering all of the investment moves, sponsorships, uh, basically everything that was happening on the business side of the development of esports for the last four to five years. And just recently, in the last few months, made the jump to the developer side on a fighting game called Rushdown Revolt, uh, made by Team Vortex, where I'm working as strategy lead, uh, sort of overseeing operations, team efficiency, uh, with an eye towards esports and overall game development. That's really interesting, because when uh, our friend Jason Wilson recommended you for this episode... I didn't even realize you were also a dev <laughs> working on a, a competitive game. So this is this is going to be a fun panel, I think. Um, yeah. So um, some people who have even been listening to this podcast for a long time probably don't know that very, very early in my career, 
I covered StarCraft 2 pretty extensively. I actually did PC Gamers uh, weekly esports column for about a year, maybe. And it was like right at the height of like 2012 into 2013 um, when when there was a lot of uh, excitement around really StarCraft 2 specifically. Um, Brood War, I guess, was still fairly popular on the Korean side, but worldwide it was definitely, I think, StarCraft 2 was sort of the only RTS that has ever kind of broken through as, as an eSport, um, depending on if you want to count MOBAs since they're an offshoot of Warcraft 3, which was an RTS. So uh, there is there is that sort of um, evolutionary branch that is still doing quite well. Um, but I'm curious if either of you, uh, ha uh, Trent, do you have like any specific memories about that era and like what made it so cool when uh when you know starcraft 2 was kind of first getting global popularity yeah i i had missed the initial wave of esports in the brood war days uh because just my time was spent you know kind of on rpgs and didn't really do a lot of pc gaming until world of warcraft uh and moving into league of legends but i very vividly remember the reactions when StarCraft II was announced uh, and started consuming some content from uh, legendary casters in that community, uh, like Day9 and Husky StarCraft, and really just sort of learning about the legacy of StarCraft and what it had, what it had done for esports. I really don't think that we would have what we have today in esports uh, without the infrastructure and the modeling for not only competitive success and storytelling, but also for business and sustainability that uh, Korean esports created in the Brood War days. And my weird, like weird flex, but okay with day nine is that we went to high school about 15 minutes apart. And the <laughs> first time I interviewed him, I noticed we had the same area code. I was like, wait, Eastern Kansas. <laughs> so it was, that was a really weird, random thing. Um, yeah, uh, Trevor, especially as somebody who played professionally, what do you remember most about that era? Yeah, um, well, we can definitely talk about the, the 2012 era, but I, I do want to challenge you guys a little bit here where sure. there was certainly Brood War that was doing incredibly well in the early 2000s in Korea. But mm -hmm. Warcraft 3 was also very popular from a, a competitive gaming standpoint, more yeah. in Europe and a little bit, well, a lot of bit in China. Uh, so you're you're talking like 2006 to 2009. It, it was one of the largest competitive games um, in China at the time. So it, when you had players like Spirit Moon from Korea or Grubby coming from the Netherlands That's going right. over there, they, they were legitimate celebrities at the time. They would have to have security to be able to get from a stage to a bathroom at, at events. Um, I was in uh, WCG 2009 uh, in Chengdu and, and the hall filled with 100,000 people in person. Uh, watching Warcraft 3 and then then later Counter-Strike. So there were certainly a lot of esports to grow from, but the main the main difference that I saw in the 2012-2013 the era was this ability to start streaming. And I, I'm assuming you guys were both uh, uh, pretty close to to that experience when that happens. Um, mm -hmm. But earlier than, than that, it was all about you need to go in person if you're not in, in South Korea or you're, you're getting replays and you're talking about them with friends. You're not really getting the expert commentary or the entertainment factor that, that comes along with that from thinking about it like a traditional sport. So when uh, Twitch and, and some of the streaming platforms before Twitch all started coming out and providing this new service and new, this new capability to connect with players, that's where 
I saw a major change where it was no longer the subculture that I could only talk about with my friends. There was now all of these online communities that were so easily accessible and so easy to to have that that back and forth with all different types of people, whether there are people working behind the scenes or, or the business folks helping to provide the resources to make it happen or the fans um, that, that were tuning in and having a, a legitimate awesome time. So I don't know if that really answered your question about the 2012-2013 the era. Uh, that was that was when I was working at IPL. Um, so I'd just come back from Korea and it was like bringing this idea of like, oh yeah, gaming is like a legitimate part of society at that point. Uh, we can do this in America too, or we can do this in Europe. Um, so I, I had a lot of that energy and everyone I was talking to was very receptive to that idea. Um, it, it was just a great explosion of, of positivity. Uh, and that led to new ideas, new companies, new teams being formed that were all building with the ideas of, okay, we, we're not just trying to get money to, to fly to this LAN event that's a few states over. We're now trying to build these businesses that are going to be around for 10, 20, 30 years. And what does that mean? What, what type of people do we need to have support it? Um, lots of different questions that that have led us to, to today. Yeah, I had totally forgotten that like Grubby and some of those guys actually came from Warcraft 3. Um, but I remembered that as soon as you said it. So th thanks for correcting me on that. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, it like actually, uh, I when you said that, I remembered uh, a story from like 2017, 2018 era of Heroes of the Storm when Grubby was working as a commentator. Uh, China held a really big Heroes of the Storm tournament that he went to commentate. And all of the other commentators told stories about how he still was having to be careful about where he was going and getting mobbed everywhere he was going, oh, wow. which, as we're going to get into later, I think speaks to the enduring legacy of RTS esports. Uh, while it may not have as firm a grip in North America, the rest of the world has by no means forgotten uh, the early days of RTS esports. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I just remember that for me, it was it was kind of the first time I ever got what all the people I grew up around who were sports fans like it, it clicked for me uh, with Starcraft 2 um, mm -hmm. when I would, you know, be I actually stayed up and to watch a, a GSL one time and missed a final exam <laughs> because I slept through <laughs> my alarm um, and just like going to bar crafts in Berkeley after I started college in San Francisco and it would just be like you know, we would be in the basement of like an Irish pub all watching this game on the TV. And I was like, wow, this like because I never was really into traditional sports growing up, but I got really, really into that, uh, that whole scene and, um, you know, all the, the personalities associated with it. And I try to think why exactly it was that Starcraft grabbed me and like nothing else really has since then. And I think it might just be. I'm a producer on 3MA, so I am like primarily a strategy gamer, a little bit on the R RPG side. Um, so I think just the the type of skill on display, you know, in a one versus one high level StarCraft game is something that I don't feel like you see the, that exact same skill set reflected in any other esport necessarily. But I'm curious if either of you would disagree with that. Uh, I mean, it, it's so challenging to kind of place different 
competitive games on like a, a harder or easier or more challenging or less challenging because they I all have different mean aspects that. I to guess it. I, I mean like the type of skills like it's it's a very I know that there's like very very high skill ceiling in in just about any esport but I guess it's sort of like the 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 one-on-one it's almost like watching a chess match mm-hmm. sort of thing that like I don't really see anywhere else interestingly enough maybe fighting games might be the closest because it's it's mm-hmm. one one v one and you're trying to outthink your opponent actively um I yeah think the I, only I would... thing that has really any comparison to rts would be super smash brothers melee uh obviously it's a different skill set but the amount of prep work that is involved the apm uh, i don't think there are really any esports that come close to matching the apm of an rts other than melee uh the enduring legacy that it has similar to brood war uh i I think those two games are really in a class on their own right at the upper limits of skill expression one versus one storytelling uh in match adjustments really there's nothing else that i think would be a fair comparison yeah i would agree with the the very strong mix of different uh, aspects of of 1v1 RTS that makes it so compelling and one thing that I would like to point out is just the the viewability of it it's not something that feels easy to get into but once you start to understand like oh okay it's it's this person's army and that against that person's army and they got to collect things to to grow so okay I can I can see how they're growing through the story of a match um, it, it's something that the viewers rewarded the more they learn about the game. And then the same thing as a player, the more you learn about your tech tree or your advancements or how to counter different strategies, it, it's all this positive experience in the learning process, which uh, the the losses aspect of it is maybe a little bit brutal. But as far as a viewer's concerned, like there, there's a lot of really positive, rewarding things. And, and when you make it into a social aspect with your friends and be able to talk about that, you can kind of think about different things and put these different um, strategies into question and throw out hypotheticals and that, that creates really cool moments. Um, but another thing that is great about RTS specifically that, that is a little bit different than the fighting games that you call out is that Starcraft uh, specifically has imperfect knowledge for the players, but not for mm-hmm. the viewers. So it, it's very similar to like World Series of Poker and World Poker Tour when they were getting popular because you're taking a game that is very, that game was very simple to understand but the players have less information than the viewer. So the viewer is constantly given this like aha moment where they can predict better of what's going to happen than the players can. So you're able to see like, oh, this player A has actually got a better hand than player B. Player B doesn't know that. I know that. And he doesn't know that. So it it, it gives this anticipation of seeing the change in realization on the player's face as it happens. And that gives a lot of power to the viewer and makes you feel even uh, more rewarded about the knowledge that you're getting through this game. So just like, that perpetual cycle of you learn more and you have a better time and that you have a better time the more you learn just uh, is very gripping in my experience. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I do think one of, I, I actually, I watched Overwatch League quite a bit and I've watched a little bit of like CSGO here and there, but I do feel like they never matched the presentation of either an RTS or a MOBA just because the the game itself isn't designed to give you that sort of high level over like battlefield overview so i feel like it's a little bit harder to yeah, so present that in a way that's going to be easy of, to follow of, maybe uh, starcraft 2 um, around 
that's something that you know early that 2010s I, I time frame experienced you know, um and then it seemed like it it kind of different fell off or maybe more accurately funneled off into different uh scenes fairly sharply and i know it's something i've always been kind of curious about like i i don't know that i could necessarily without going around and interviewing people which i guess is sort of what i'm doing right now <laughs> <laughs> explain exactly why it happened um but it's just seemed like you know there are less people showing up there were not as many people talking about it um maybe some of the big players either you know went off to do other things or went to different games um but i'm curious uh trevor when do you think that that started to happen and what what did you observe of kind of the gradual decline of of rts and esports yeah, from my experience and, and perspective, it it hasn't declined at all. If if you look at the oh, numbers really? from 2013 to 2015 to to even now, um, when you pull out some of the the outliers of like the effects of BlizzCon and and we don't currently have a BlizzCon due to COVID, the viewership numbers of the of the major events is is pretty stable and it's been stable for a long time. So my experience and and I kind of followed this in my professional career too is is it's not that StarCraft II or RTS was declining; it's that it was the first thing that everyone saw and could talk about in a structured way about how gaming and esports could legitimately be all of the things we think about positively from traditional sports, but for the new generations. StarCraft was the the game that was referenced in 2012, 2013. But as gaming grew and, and more and more people are just seeing gaming as a legitimate pastime for them, there were other alternatives on top of StarCraft. So you have League of Legends coming out and, and getting millions and millions of viewers for their events. And you've got bigger prize pools in, in FPS games and some of the other team games that are going on. That didn't take away from StarCraft. That just added to esports and gaming overall. And it's just growing this, this global phenomenon um, that we're all part of. So there's a lot of things that we could look at and talk about for why, why didn't StarCraft ride that wave and instead just kind of stayed at, at a stable base. Um, but again, from my perspective, I don't, I don't see that RTS or StarCraft uh, diminished in any way. Interesting. Uh, what how what are your thoughts on that, Trent? Yeah, it's actually something that we talk about a lot uh, in the fighting game space. Is this notion that if a game is not the absolute top game that has the most entrance in every tournament, that it has the most streaming viewers at all, it's a dead game. And this is a very common practice for gamers, especially yep. <laughs> as we look at streaming numbers and we compare things to newer and shinier things. Uh, it's very common for if something is not at the top, then it is dead. And we we know from the success of even enduring brood war leagues in Korea to what Warcraft 3 has still been able to accomplish in China to Starcraft 2 still being operated by third parties and continuing to uh, tell new stories. Uh, even in recent years, I, I just recently... Uh, one of the last things I did before I left Sports Business Journal was interview a young uh, Italian kid that was making waves in the StarCraft scene. Uh, so it, the esports is still very much alive and well for StarCraft 2, but I do think the fact that it wasn't able to ride that wave and be part of where shooters and MOBAs and card games like Hearthstone rose to in the modern era uh does speak to the concerns that people have about the viability of the genre going forward to be able to 
match the genres that surpassed it in esports relevance since 2011. Interesting, because like, I guess sort of my perspective is a little bit of an outsider compared to to both of you was, you know, it was this huge phenomenon and like they had Starcraft Cheetos in Korea. And like, is that all just, you know, it, it was like a cultural fad, like pet rocks that just it fell out of fashion because people have more options of what to watch now if they want to watch esports. Yeah, I would say that would hold up when you talk globally. Um, if you're talking about Korea specifically, there's a lot more factors at play. Um, so I, I don't know where you want to take the, the conversation, but we go either direction. I'm, well, I'm curious about Korea, if you have experience of that specifically, because I've talked to a couple people within the last couple of years who sort of echoed this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even in Korea, Starcraft's not anywhere near as good as, as or not as big as it used to be. Yeah, so so talking about that, like um, StarCraft Two, arguably was never as big as Brood War, um, or very easily argued uh, that way. So Brood War was in a special time in in the country where like PC bongs, these these internet cafes, just became ubiquitous with every street corner, and they were very very cheap entertainment that you could go to with your friends. So Brood War was out at that time, and it just took off like. Uh, I don't know if this is true, but like baseball in America, for example, or at least that's how it how it's referred to. So that then led to a group of sponsorships from the biggest companies in Korea, which then uh, turned into Kespa and, and Pro League, which created this very stable economic base. There was uh, tons of money coming in to make it so that it could have good TV broadcasts and the teams had good team houses and, and there were coaches and all the other support staff necessary to make this a legitimate profession for a lot of young gamers. All of that um, did not carry over to StarCraft 2. So all the StarCraft 2 teams that we saw in, in the early eras, they were actually competing directly against the Kespa uh, teams and, and the companies behind them. So getting that into the mainstream culture was a lot harder from that regard because you didn't have the, the corporate power around marketing where you're, you're taking your StarCraft 2 players and putting them on billboards or putting them in your commercials for Cheetos. You're still using your Brood War players because that's under your, your branded team that you own. Uh, and, and it's something that you've built a lot of um, uh, value in that is wholly separate from from Blizzard at the time. Um, so that kind of business aspect mixed with the absence of the, the cultural um, uh, timing for StarCraft II made it so that it never really reached that Brood War uh, success. And for the younger generation, when you're talking like 2014, 2015, League of Legends started to take over. And, and League of Legends did a lot of really amazing things with the PC bongs and, and some of their broadcasts kind of picked up a lot of the celebrities. And that's where you see the the co-marketing shift to in the later part of the 2010s was more towards League of Legends players being on billboards and making million dollar salaries and, and things along those lines. So esports didn't diminish, like arguably strategy didn't diminish if you put MOBA in, into that category. But StarCraft as a brand didn't have the same success with StarCraft 2 in Korea as it did with, with Brood War. Interesting. And is that more, would you attribute that more to just did a really good job working with those sponsors in Korea, or is there anything about MOBA? I mean, I could name some of my offhand theories about why maybe MOBA is a little bit more popular with the average esports viewer, just being like a team game and kind of being more personality based, you know, more people watch basketball than chess on TV, uh, I guess is how I've thought of it. Um, but, uh, Trent, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I think team games, We, if we just look at traditional sports as a guidepost, team games are pretty much always going to be at the top, just the narratives, the rivalries, the ability for a team brand to endure after players have left and create generational fans uh, that support the exact same team competing in the exact same structure, uh, even after the, the players leave and shift. Uh, we, we're seeing that now with League of Legends, with Counter-Strike still continuing to break new records in its viewership. Valorant arguably set to become the biggest esport on the planet in the next couple of years. Uh, so I, I do think that we will probably always see team-based games at the very top of the esports world, but we are also seeing plenty of success uh, at a lower level. A, a sustainable level for card games and strategy games and fighting games uh, and even mobile titles like Clash Royale, uh, just not quite at that same headline-grabbing level that a League of Legends or a Counter-Strike or a Valorant is. Yeah, Trevor, specifically, like, talking about Korea, do you think it was more uh, on on... Relic or not relic? Uh, why am I uh, riot? Unriot. <laughs> I think I said relic earlier. I'm gonna have to edit that. Uh, doing a really good job with those sponsors, or do you think there was something that League of Legends just caught that market in a way that, um, you know, StarCraft II wasn't quite able to? Yeah, it, it, there's certainly aspects to the games themselves and how they're played that that are factors, but um, I, I think your point is the biggest one in in pointing to for League of Legends success in Korea is that Riot did a really good job of targeting their marketing. They did a really good job of um, reaching out to the right individuals that were looking for that new game uh, because StarCraft II just didn't quite hit their appetite for whatever reason. Um, so like OGN, for example, was, was still being broadcast on TV when League of Legends came out. They did not have the deal for StarCraft II. So they were put in direct competition to uh, GOM TV and GSL at the time, and, and they're going to pull out all the stops to to win that that uh, that competition. So Riot making the right bets on the right people and the right organizations just made every single dollar they spent that much more valuable. And it it also was on the game side where players going into the PC bongs um, got to play the game for free, and they had every single character, every single champion in the game unlocked for them, which was hundreds of dollars of value um, right there. That that made it very easy for school kids to get their friends involved and, and start to participate because you could play with an entire unlock uh, account basically for pennies on the dollar per hour. Um, so like a lot of that all kind of factored together to make it easy to get into. And then they had a ton of resources to educate players through these pro level competitions that were broadcast on national television to get people to figure out the right way to play and, and get excited about strategies and follow their their, uh, their favorite players at, at the professional level. So it was just this really great mix that happened at the right time. And um, a lot of people talk about how Riot didn't spend a whole lot on marketing. They just spent on esports and it, it worked out really, really well for them early on. Got it. Okay, so let's kind of transition that into, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about sort of this perception that if you're not on top, it's it's a dead game, which I think is is a, uh, a well-worn meme at this point. Um, but uh, for you guys at Frost Giant uh, with Stormgate, like, what what are your aspirations? Like, if you if you could 
I don't know. I don't want to ask you to predict, but like if you could be as big as League of Legends, would you want to pursue that or is are you looking to fit a different niche? Oh, man, it would be wonderful if uh, <laughs> that many people were, were interested in, in RTS, whether 1v1, co-op, or, or 3v3. So, uh, yeah, there, I can't imagine any downside to that. But to to phrase it a different way, like our aspirations from an esports side is really to make sure that we're producing entertainment that's authentic to the audience. It's it's something that people want to see, whether that's five people or five like billion people. Um, and we want to make sure that the programs that we're producing are able to scale with the interest of the audience. So if, if people want to see a tournament every single day, we want to be able to support that. But if it's more realistic and they want to see a tournament every uh, every month or so, like that's that's where we're going to focus our energy and, and try to get good at at targeting that demands and speaking authentically to that demand. Um, so I, it's not a concrete answer, but like figuring out that process and making sure that we have a lot of flexibility in, in how we are continuing to grow um, through the lifespan of, of this very um, long life game uh, as we're planning for it. Like that, that's kind of what we see as success. Sure, sure. And I guess since this is the first time we've actually talked about Stormgate on the podcast, in case anybody hasn't been following the news, uh, do you want to give us just a really quick breakdown of like what kind of an RTS it is? Sure. Um, this isn't the, the exact, uh, marketing term. So apologies <laughs> if, if I differ from our, our uh, steam page or anything, but, uh, basically we're, we're setting out to create a PC RTS game that, um, does have the ability to go deep in, in hardcore, uh, in, in straight up one V one and three V three at the highest levels, but is also trying to change that dynamic of RTS and be a social RTS where it is easier to get your friends involved. You can play co-op, you can play a little bit more casually and have a really good time. And it's um, set in like a sci-fi fantasy uh, hybrid for a post-apocalyptic Earth where everything is kind of coming back after a catastrophe um, that, that, of course, the players will be able to experience and, and have a good time with. Um, so it gives us a lot of different things we can play with in, in the setting and then a lot of really cool stories and characters that could be shown. And then having those, those characters and stories woven through the, the campaign missions as well as the competitive side and everything in between, uh, that is my nutshell for Stormgate. Got it. Cool. Um, so Trent, you're also working on, even though this isn't a fighting game podcast, I, now that I know that you're actually <laughs> also developing a competitive game, I'm kind of curious uh, how you sort of see that um, sort of finding your place in the ecosystem sort of question. Uh, do you think that, you know, an average new fighting game today or, or any genre, um, you know, is it, does it make sense to go for like those top level, like Evo slots, or do you, do you see it more as you guys and other developers on a similar level are aiming to be in that kind of like, we exist and we don't care if we're the number one game or not. So the, this is one of the most fascinating topics about esports that, you could talk about for hours. So I'll, I'll try to nutshell the broad strokes of it very <laughs> sure. briefly. Um, but at a high level, there's a couple of key points uh, to think about. First being the success of an esport is always going to be relative to the size of the game's player base. Uh, every game that has tried to force an esport larger than the success of its game has failed. Uh, that it just doesn't work because we no game has been able to pass that barrier 
to have somebody we don't have generational esports fans yet like you do where you grow up learning and understanding and intuiting the rules of football uh so even riot uh with league of legends their focus is on converting existing league of legends players into esports viewers and if other people happen to watch great so every successful esport is serving its community first as spectators and second, as the people who dictate what that esport looks like. Uh, same token, every game that has tried to force an esport to function outside of what the community wants its competitions to look like has failed. So, a an esport can only be as successful as its community wants it to be competitive, and as its community wants its structure to function. Uh, I think a phenomenal example of this is Heroes of the Storm, which for my money is, is at the highest level is one of the greatest esports that has ever been created. But it is a completely different video game than the video game that the average Heroes of the Storm fan is playing, which is a very casual, don't take it seriously experience. And even though Activision Blizzard was able to put lots and lots of money into a very similar structure to League of Legends, the viewership was nothing in comparison, in part because the player base was likely a bit smaller, but primarily because that audience was not interested in competition because that was not the game that they were playing. So bringing that back around to uh, a Stormgate, a Rushdown Revolt, any game that is currently in the phase of finding out what its viability as an esport is, the number one thing to do is listen to the community, look at what the community wants, look at what the community is willing to support, and scale an esport from there. Interesting, because I've all you know, it's it's sort of it almost sounds to me like a paradox a little bit, where you know we we've talked about how you know League of Legends being so easy to get into, or or Brood War being so easy to get into during like the PC bombing era was part of why it, it had such a large viewership. Um, but then to hear you say that, you know, maybe in, in the case of Heroes of the Storm, it was almost the opposite because the the people who are getting into it casually didn't get converted into esports viewers. Um, is there a piece of this that, that I'm missing? Or um, what, what sort of is the difference between those two situations? I think... The, the key difference there, not to go on my entire tirade about <laughs> Heroes of the Storm, uh, but the key difference there is that the, the game being played, while it is a more refined version of League of Legends that you're playing at the highest level, it is still League of Legends when you're playing in bronze or silver ranked by the same token, watching top level StarCraft is going to make you a better StarCraft player. Here's the Storm had so many unique factors to it that are not worth getting into for this audience necessarily, <laughs> uh, but it was effectively a completely different game when five coordinated players were playing it than it was in the versions of the game that were available to the average solo queue player to the point where there was almost not a lot you could really learn from watching top level esports other than maybe the correct builds for your character 
But even then, a lot of those choices were very nuanced based on what you were doing in a coordinated team effort in that specific team composition uh, that are different from the things that you can pull watching Faker play mid lane in League of Legends and immediately incorporate into your own experience of the game. Yeah, and I think another important thing to to add on to that is that easy to get into is not necessarily about the game itself. It's about the entire culture that includes the game and is around the game. So when you think of like American football, for example, like that is not an easy game to get into. But if you grew up in America, it is everywhere. And Super Bowl is the biggest viewed thing on TV. So you're you're brought into it easily if you wish to be by playing catch and, and by playing uh, uh, flag football and other things like that throughout our school system. So that you could say it's easy to get into, even though the sport itself is not a sport that would be easy to get into. So I think League of Legends and a lot of RTS games are not inherently easy games to get into. But if you hit the right moment where enough of your friend group is also engaged in this this topic and talking about it and you've got streams to watch and you've got guides to follow, like that's what makes it easy to get into for you in, in your situation. All right. Interesting. So, Trevor, how do you go about setting up an RTS for esports success in 2022, uh, when you're going up against, you know, the likes of League and CS:GO and Valorant and all this other stuff that has come into the market since the last time a big RTS entered uh, entered play. Yeah, I think the the most important thing is is something that Trent was just talking about a few minutes ago of uh, communicating with with the audience. What does the player base want? Like, what do they want to play in? What what do they want to watch? Um, being constantly in that dialogue throughout the entire alpha process, beta process, and then after the game's uh, globally available, all of that is the most important thing to, to just make sure that we're producing things that matter and, and they work well for people. Um, aside from that, by us starting so early in, in thinking about esports and competitive play, we're able to identify some of the areas that might have caused friction in, in older games with older tech and see what we can build actually from a technology standpoint from the ground up to minimize that friction or take it away entirely. So for someone that does want to learn more about strategies, there's an, a very easy way to get into that. If, if it's someone that wants to join a, a team and, and have other people to play with or, or practice, finding ways of, of making that as smooth of a, and, and rewarding of an experience as possible, that makes a huge difference in the player that's going to join one tournament, lose in first round and never come back versus the player that's going to play in that tournament lose still but then be so excited to go and watch the replays and try to figure out what, what did they do wrong what could they have done better and have people to talk with and and um, explore uh that that passion beyond just winning versus losing it, it, there's there's a lot more nuance to having a good time uh even in competitive games and and that's something that um we're going to be spending a ton of effort on um to to try to educate the players and set those expectations up before someone even gets into the game for the first time so that when they do get into the game they regardless of the outcome of that particular game they want to play again and they want to go deeper yeah i've heard you use the term social rts a couple times now and i'm curious what that means to you guys that's not just going to be you know having clans or having chat lobbies and all the stuff we'd sort of expect yeah, there's a lot of things that um, are still being designed and, and built, so I can't go into too many details yet, but uh, look forward to in, in future conversations. Um, but at, at a high level, like uh, one of the things that still keeps StarCraft II very popular today is is the co-op mode in, in StarCraft. And 
uh, a little bit different from what we normally t- think about for esports, but there's certainly competitive aspects to it that that I'm excited for. But um, yeah, just talking about the social side of things, like that co-op experience, it creates something where you're still playing all of the same mechanics and, and thrill of an RTS game, but it takes it away from you playing against another human and, and having to beat that human or, or lose to that human um, and, and still rewards a lot of the really cool aspects of it while making that social experience working with someone else or, or two other people um, the, the root of, of the entertainment that you're having. So that's one aspect is that we're, we're spending a ton of effort in making sure that that co-op experience is, is next level um, and learning a lot from the lessons learned in StarCraft II co-op when it went free to play. Um, and then from the competitive side, like we're also focusing a lot on making sure 3v3 isn't just a mode that has uh, four extra players in it compared to 1v1. Where there's going to be a lot of attention and detail put into making sure that the win conditions of that mode are are something that is really exciting. And and once you just turn into a team based play, like we were talking about before with with League of Legends and some of the MOBAs, that inherently creates these other opportunities for for social aspects. So uh, way more than just creating clans, like you mentioned, but um, a lot that's still in development. And and we'll be excited to share more details when they come out. I was a big fan of Archon mode in SC2, so I'm always <laughs> down for more co-op stuff. Uh, do the, you... Oh, go ahead. Just to stay on the, the 3v3 mode, I think that is particularly compelling as we look at the modern esports genre and the parallels to what we're seeing in the fighting game genre right now uh, have me particularly excited for what the potential of that mode from an esports perspective could be for Stormgate. Uh, as we're recording this right now, the open beta for the Warner Brothers version of Super Smash Brothers oh, yeah. just launched mm-hmm. uh, multiverses and already in its early access open beta, it has beaten these peak player base numbers for every fighting game on Steam. And it's not close. Uh, and it, not only is it the first free to play game with the kind of IP behind it that it has, but what really makes it stand apart is that the entire game is the first Smash-style fighting game to be designed entirely around its 2v2 mode. So every aspect of the game has been designed primarily for team-based play rather than for individual play like every other fighting game that's been created uh, before now. And we're already seeing the success of that uh, model for a game that still has enormous room to grow. So I think it's it's very intelligent in, in the modern age of free-to-play games to be not only adding co-op modes and team-based play as an afterthought, but to be very intentionally creating that as a component of competitive play uh, that has intentional design behind it. So that's the real question is, uh, are we going to get uh, LeBron James as a hero skin for, uh, <laughs> for Stormgate? Um, yeah, I, I thought that was a joke and then I realized it wasn't. And I was like, wow, <laughs> Apparently he's real good. What an age we live in. What, what an age we live in. Um, yeah, uh, Stormgate is set on a future Earth, so who knows? Yeah, they, you could find yeah LeBron James's DNA and bring him back to life. If like, anyone could survive an apocalypse, Jurassic Park style, yeah. So it's it's not impossible. Uh, you you heard it here first. Um, you know, so uh, Trent, the next question I was going to ask you actually sort of ties into what you just said, which is if you 
as uh, you know, a, a, someone who's followed esports a lot, we're going to give your suggestion on how a new RTS could sort of make another splash in in the scene um, at this stage. Is it about team play? Are there other things, even business wise, that you would want to see them doing? Uh, for in prep for this conversation and reading some of the AMAs that have come out, it seems like largely the wish list that I would have has already been accounted for. I'm I'm frankly very impressed uh, and and very excited for the potential here. Uh, and again, the parallels to the fighting game genre are are amusing from my perspective as somebody that has studied it for so many years because people talk a lot about RTS just not being viable in the modern era and people don't want to play into single player games or games that are too hard to get into. People don't want to feel the bad feelings of losing, but the reality is nobody has really tried at this point. Starcraft two went free to play, but at a time and saw a lot of success with its co-op mode, but at a time when, you know, it wasn't the new kid on the block. Uh, Age of Empires attempted a free-to-play version that was not enormously successful, but it was in the earlier days of free-to-play. The Warcraft 3 remaster had a unique journey that did not transcend uh, the genre for very legitimate reasons that have nothing to do with whether or not people actually want to play an RTS. So the reality is we have not yet seen a team with this pedigree, with this level of awareness of esports and monetization attempt an RTS in the modern era, in an era that is still seeing very difficult games like Dota 2 find a lot of esports success and player base growth in an era where Elden Ring is one of the most successful games of the year that completely flies in the face of no of the notion that people aren't willing to play hard games and be rewarded for mastery. So I I everything that I see about the industry right now suggests to me that we are primed in the coming years for a revival of RTS. Yeah, I talked to a lot of strategy devs and almost every time I talk to an RTS developer that has any sort of a competitive mode, I always ask about esports and it seems like they always say, yeah, you know, it'd be cool if the community really embraces it or something like we don't have any specific plans, but we'll see what happens organically and stuff like that, which is. You know, I I think it really is that that no, I've I don't think I've talked to another RTS developer since StarCraft 2 came out, who was like, yeah, we have an esports lead and we want to try to do stuff with esports. So that's that's really cool to hear. It is also just kind of weird to think about that. Yeah, like, no, nobody else has really tried, honestly, at least not in the way it sounds like you guys are. Um, But Trevor, I'm curious to we've talked about, you know, team play having been maybe one of the factors that gave MOBA a little bit of a boost. Do you think that the team mode, like if you just had to guess, do you think that's going to be the future of, of esports for Stormgate? Or do you think 1v1 will still be the most prestigious competitive mode? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, this isn't a perfect answer, but um, my prediction is that we are going to have very robust ecosystems for 1v1 and for 3v3 and even some fun competitive uh, modes for, for co-op, so who's able to get the highest scores and, and other accolades in, in that mode. So uh, the interesting part for me and, and my role is going to be how do we how do we do the balance in between those? How do we make it so that our, our championships are celebrating the best 1v1 player and then also celebrating the best 3v3 teams and, and everything in between? Um, so saying now which one might be bigger than the other is, is going to be really hard to predict. <laughs> um, but what we're going to do is is do our best to listen to both communities if they are distinct and do everything we can to make each one of them as, as big and awesome as, as it can be. Um, so yeah, not a great answer to your question. Apologies there, but super exciting for, for me and the, the rest of the team to try to figure out how we do that right in, in both uh, categories. I think it's, I think it's a fine answer considering I'm asking you to predict the future. So uh, yeah. <laughs> if I had that um, skill, uh, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think we would all be off on an Island somewhere if we could predict the future. Maybe not. Uh, Depends on how far you predict. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, yeah. Um, as we kind of wrap up here, do either of you have any final thoughts on sort of, the role of RTS in the esports ecosystem, maybe what what makes it kind of unique compared to the other things, and and uh, any any further thoughts about the future. I think uh, one of the things that is particularly interesting about the era that we're in now is a lot of developers are recognizing the value of esports without trying to chase uh, the success of League of Legends and trying to turn it into this thing that is generating profit. Uh, we, we've seen a number of attempts with that, with fr various franchise leagues and things, but even for Riot, uh, if you look at the strat the structure of esports for its various games, it is really pushing commercialized esports for Valorant, Wild Rift, and League of Legends, but its other titles like Legends of Runeterra, the upcoming fighting game that it's creating, uh, Team Fight Tactics, all of these are organized under a different group called Organized Play that is continuing to host seasonal championships, crown world championships each year, put some amount of prize money back into the ecosystem, but is not trying to turn it into a sustainable business that does more than support the aspirational and personality-driven long-term viability of that game. So esports is an important component of any competitive game, but it does not have to be this attempting to chase the spectacle of traditional sports thing that so many people have tried since the early days of the League of Legends World Championship. And I think there is a lot of opportunity if an RTS is able to blow up the way that it certainly could with the right mix of business model accessibility and IP. There is still a lot of opportunity to create really compelling, really powerful esports stories and create something special for your fans without it having to rival the Valorants and League of Legends of the world. 
Do you have any final thoughts, Trevor? Yeah, uh, just layering on top of what you said there, Trent, like the, the distinction of organized play in esports, I think, is a really good one to talk about more. And what I see esports as is it, it's not a, a new way of playing the game necessarily. It's just a different way of organizing the meta experience around the game. And if you look at ranked play, like if you're saying this game's going to have ranked play, it's it's not something that is noteworthy at all. So when a company says this game's going to have esports, it comes with these expectations. And a lot of companies that have tried to push that and force it, that's where they stumble because they haven't even figured out the expectations for themselves to then be able to deliver it effectively for for what the fans are looking for. So I, I think as esports matures as an industry and we get better at talking about it and each game company gets better at laying out what their experience is intended to be and then have a dialogue with with the players to um, dial it in properly and, and, and get it right. I think that's where we're going to get a lot more success out of the gate for for a lot more titles that have um, inherently some level of competition about it that can be celebrated. Um, one of the things that I'm just super excited about for the future of RTS is, is also kind of what Trent was talking about, where with Stormgate, we, we may be treading on new ground here, and, and that gives a lot of uh, potential for um, fulfilling what a lot of the, the fans and players are looking for. And, and um, the way that we're going to get that done right is continuing to have dialogue. Uh, we have a really passionate group of people that are um, continuing to give us feedback on forums and ideas on, on Reddit and, and things along those lines and, and a lot of good personal relationships that we built over the last couple decades. Um, so everything that you see in Stormgate, like it is there because people have asked for it and, and have had intelligent conversations about why they're looking for certain things and then trying to build that into a game that that we're hoping is going to be um, just a great addition to the legacy of RTS and and uh, do the best we can to make it an awesome entertainment experience for people. So sort of the premise that I began this episode with that, that you both were kind of able to disprove uh, being that RTS sort of fell off of the esports board when really it, I guess, maybe overshadowed would be a better word. Uh, do either of you have any, if, if someone wants to go watch right now, like, are there any cool players you would want to recommend that you've seen lately? Uh, I mean, if you're you're interested in watching StarCraft 2, um, DreamHack and ESL are still doing a, a full championship tour every year. Um, if you're more interested in Age of Empires, Age of Empires 4 and Age of Empires 2 and, and several of the other titles are continuing to put out really cool stuff. Uh, Microsoft has... Uh, awesome partnership with Red Bull as, as well as a bunch of um, really strong community creators um, that is, is continuing to create awesome content there. I uh, can't recommend any specific players, but um, there's a lot of different styles in all of these different RTS games, which is another reason why RTS is a genre is super cool. Yeah, I, I think to echo that the content that Red Bull is doing for competitive Age of Empires 2 is really compelling. And that is a, a scene that we unfortunately didn't get to talk about nearly enough uh, in this episode, but is has really found a way to carve out its own niche and create some really interesting tournament structures uh, and even draw uh, new people into the fold this many years after launch. Uh, we mentioned Day 9 earlier his content series learning the ropes of age of empires was really compelling and sort of opened the uh, opened my eyes to what that side of this genre could look like when given the ability to be optimized for the kind of play that the competitive community was looking for i really need to go back and watch that i used to watch 
speaking of the, the the golden age, I used to watch the Day Nine Daily every day. So I'd I'd love to see him talking about RTS again. Um uh Trevor, where can people go if they want to find out more about Stormgate? Yeah, if you're interested in any of the things we talked about, uh, you can go to playstormgate.com. Uh, there's a way to sign up for our beta when, when that's available as well. Um, and then you can also find Stormgate on Steam uh, with some additional details and uh, work in progress assets and, and able to follow the process there. Um, and I believe there's also a newsletter on, on playstormgate.com that you can sign up for to, to follow the dev process. And um, yeah, feel free to uh, also join the Reddits and, and uh, join the conversation that way. And Trent, since you've brought such a wealth of knowledge to this episode, uh, why don't you plug what you're working on real quick and where people can go to find out more? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can follow me directly at Trent underscore esports. You'll mostly hear thoughts about the platform fighter genre, uh, since that's what we're working on. Rushdown Revolt is uh, free on Steam in its alpha phase right now. Uh, we're gearing up for a big run of tournaments next month and uh, just continuing to move forward into creating a unique take on the Smash-style uh, fighting game experience that leans more on traditional fighting games uh, with faster movement, but more accessible uh, ways to control your character that don't break your hands in half the way some <laughs> older entries in the genre have. Yeah, I'll definitely be checking that out. I've I've always been a, a big Smash player, so never never that great at it, but it's <laughs> it's uh I've been playing it since the '64. So, um, yeah, Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. Uh, you can find us there and join the discussion on the forums if forums is still a thing that you do over on idlethumbs.net/3ma. Uh, you can find us on Twitter where we are at 3ma. And as always, the show is supported by listeners just like you on patreon.com slash 3MA, where you can get access to bonus episodes, Rob and Troy talking about movies. Uh, you can get access to our Discord server, all kinds of cool stuff. Be back next week or maybe the week after that with another episode. But until then, for Trent and for Trevor, this is Len saying goodnight. <laughs>